0: Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice, welcoming you to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, an ongoing exploration about how to improve health and health care. When it comes to the field of psychedelic-assisted therapy, much of the attention has been focused on the promise of research into using agents such as MDMA and psilocybin to treat PTSD anxiety, and various addictions. There's been less focus on other potential applications for PAT, and that's what we're shifting our attention to on today's show. Joining us is Dr. Peter Hendricks, a clinical psychologist and the Hearsink Endowed Chair of Psychiatry at University of Alabama, Birmingham, who's conducting research using psilocybin to treat fibromyalgia in addition to cocaine use disorder and smoking cessation. Dr. Hendricks is also a professor in the Center for Addiction and Pain Prevention and Intervention based at the university. And thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'd like to start with learning about you and your background. What first got you interested in in the healthcare field and then particularly psychology and
1: psychiatry? Oh, great question. And, and probably among the FAQs and you know, explaining how I got to where I am, I think for almost anybody would be a difficult question. To answer. So in, in one way, I want to say that I, I just sort of went with the flow and ended up here quite surprisingly. But you know, I, I I did long have an interest in working in some field with the ability to improve the human condition. And you know, this this started really upon graduation from college. I went to the University of Virginia. I moved to San Francisco. I worked at a homeless shelter in the Tenderloin for a year, and after that period of time, I realized I'd like to better understand and study addiction and to develop more effective treatments for substance use disorders insofar that addiction was a common thread that connected many of the clients of this homeless shelter. And so from San Francisco, I moved to Florida of all places. It's not where I thought I'd be only because I'd never been there before. And I was in Tampa and at the University of South Florida, I studied primarily smoking cessation. And And you might wonder how I got from there to here. But at the time, the thought was that smoking is, is a model for addiction that works quite well, especially as a graduate student who needs to finish graduate school in a timely manner. And <laughs> if you want to study a, a model of addiction, smoking is a good one for a graduate student only because there are many smokers out there, unfortunately, And of the populations of people who use substances, they tend to be a bit more reliable than others. So I I focused on smoking cessation at the University of South Florida in the Moffitt Cancer Center uh, before spending one year in Durham, North Carolina at the Durham VA, all clinical psychologists, complete one year of of clinical internship. And then I returned to San Francisco to work at University of California at San Francisco as a postdoc and to gain some experience with clinical trial methodology. And it was there that I was exposed to this line of work in, in psychedelics. My dissertation just happened to be published very serendipitously in the in the same issue of the same journal as Roland Griffith's now landmark study of psilocybin and healthy volunteers. Oh, you're kidding. And so, so I was sent a complimentary copy to my office. And I've told this story many times, but it's a good one, I think, at least. I was sent a complimentary copy of this issue to my little office as a postdoc, and I eagerly Opened this issue, thinking I would I would turn to my article, and instead I I turned to Rollins, and I think at that moment I I lost all interest in seeing my name in print. <laughs> read Read the article from beginning to end, and I was I was fascinated because I I was raised in the 80s in the Washington D.C. area. My father was an attorney for the Department of Justice, and I I, I would guess my formative years were during the peak "Just Say No" war on drugs era. You know, eight of my formative years were during the Reagan administration in the DC area, and my assumption, even as a postdoc at UCSF, was, well, if it's a Schedule One controlled substance, then it's it's dangerous and addictive. That's what the designation would indicate. And what's interesting is that most students of psychology would briefly skip over whatever happened in the late sixties and early seventies, like there was this this thing that happened with Timothy Leary and and the counterculture and you know, LSD might have been their drug of choice. Now, that was weird, but uh, moving on. <laughs> and and that was sort of the extent of my education in psychedelics at the time. I may have thought of them as hallucinogens. You you use the drug, you hallucinate. For some odd reason, the counterculture was fond of these drugs. I'm not sure why, but that would have been the extent of thought I would given psychedelics at the time. And, you know, my interest was, was not born from any per history of personal use. So my interest really originated from having seen this this article and really being amazed. Now, you know, I think there, there are many people in the psychedelic world who come from something of a spiritual or religious background, and, and I would be one of those. And it, it certainly spoke to me personally that one could have a, a very highly meaningful spiritual experience, one that you would label spiritual that could motivate behavior. And I think that would be intuitive for almost anybody. And I think most people, if you ask them, why why do you do what you do, ultimately, they would say, well, they have some sense of a transcendent purpose, something that is bigger than the self. And that can be many things to many different people. And for some people, they they might seek transcendence in a religious framework. For many people, the, their source of transcendence might be something else. I think for almost everybody, there's some sense that you're trying to make the world a better place for the people you love, your children, your grandchildren, your friends, Humanity, creation, whatever it might be. So I, I, I I very much did respond in like a very positive way to this idea that there could be a drug that could tap into that sense of transcendence we have and 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 change behavior for the better. That was intuitive to me, and you know at the time I was very interested in in getting involved in this line of work, but that wasn't going to happen as a postdoc. I had to wait until I had the you know, the the seniority or, or, you know, capital to initiate this line of work here at UAB. And now here I am. It's 2024 now. So this is 18 years later. And and I feel like I'm I'm living a dream in many ways. It's 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 really gratifying to be working in this area.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm glad you shared that history, because I think it is hard for people to understand who are, you know, younger just how much stigma there was about psychedelics, and and how effectively they had been depicted as, you know, the gateway to hell. You know, I mean, I'm a little older than you, so I remember the tail end of, you know, people, stories about people jumping off of roofs and all these, you know, horrible things that were happening and the Nixon people were very strident about it. And it just, it's so interesting that, you know, even after the Roland Griffiths sort of imprimatur of Johns Hopkins Saying it's basically indicating it's okay to look at this stuff, it's still taking years and years and years, and there is still great concern and the politics of this of this, of this is going to be very interesting about how the public at large is gonna receive this idea that psychedelics are now somehow okay to use given all that baggage so are, have you been you know sort of surprised or not surprised about how how long a progression it's been since since that first Roland Griffiths article?
1: Oh yes. You know i think there was a point say in maybe 2014 somewhere in in that somewhere in that time where the the number of people on the planet who were really interested in psychedelics was very small and you could have put us all in one room and in fact we all were often in one room in fitchburg wisconsin during regular hefter research institute board meetings and had a had a bomb gone off in that room, there wouldn't have been anybody on the planet left really interested in psychedelics at that point. Many of us felt, well, look, this could be the first and only study I ever do, say, with psilocybin, but I really believe in this. And I'm willing to take this risk because this really could be a game changer. This could really change the clinical landscape. And I think for most of us, that's where the motivation comes from. In my own experience, and, and the literature is certainly consistent with this, most treatments for substance use disorder don't work very well. And we're in the midst of not only an ongoing tobacco and alcohol epidemic, but a emerging opioid epidemic. We lose half a million Americans to tobacco every year, about 100,000 people to alcohol and close to 100,000 from opioids. And the the treatments that we have for those who are dealing with addiction are not effective and we need to do something to improve the lives of those who are really suffering here. And with psychedelics, the hope was we could really improve the effectiveness of existing treatments. And I think those of us who were involved in this early on really felt strongly about this potential. Now, I think we have to be careful because as scientists, we also have to be objective and dispassionate. And in many ways, I would say that the messaging around psychedelics may have been too effective to the point where many of us would feel we, we should probably pump the brakes a bit there's quite a bit of hype in the media around psychedelics we we don't think that they will be effective for everybody every time They're certainly not magic bullets there's certainly not cure-alls they certainly come with a range of risks that we have to consider but in the case of smoking cessation for example If existing treatments, current treatments are effective maybe 20% of the time, and that might be optimistic, if we can improve the success rates of these treatments to about 50%, then at the population level, we could save millions of lives. But if, if we opened a clinic, a psilocybin clinic for smoking cessation, we'd also have to acknowledge of every 100 people who'd come for treatment, half 50 of those would still be smoking. And had they followed the news coverage, they might feel that they'd been misled, because of course, you know, Michael Pollan has told us this is how you change your mind. But the thing is, it, it it doesn't always work that way, and it's not effective for everybody. But that's how any treatment goes ever. So I think it is important to sort of now temper our enthusiasm, and to note that those of us who are enthusiastic were, we're never under the impression that this would cure everything for everybody, but it would would improve rather significantly on what we currently have.
0: Yeah. That it's a a new tool that, you know, where there's been such a paucity of new tools and certainly effective. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Well, new, I mean, new, <laughs> it, 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 what's ironic is that obviously many of these, these drugs have been around for a very long time and, you know, it could be that psilocybin was one of the very first, if not first psychoactive drugs that humans ever consumed or, I mean, there, there's evidence that humans have used psilocybin for many thousands of years, but I guess new from the perspective of Western medicine. And I I think we really dropped the ball in the, the 60s and 70s by politicizing these compounds and, and essentially shutting down research with them. I'm glad that we're picking it back up. I'm glad that there's all this enthusiasm. But if anything, I would say let's, let's still try to be as objective as we can and be open to wherever the data might lead us, including around risks that should be considered and the, the the fact that psychedelics may not show any efficacy at all for some conditions. That's okay. Th- there does seem to be in some circles a near like religious fervor around these these compounds. And you know I can understand that people often have profoundly meaningful experiences with them. But we also have to acknowledge that this this doesn't apply for everybody. A- as we might also say with any religion, it might really speak to someone or it may not. And, and that's okay. It could really change your life, or it may not, and that's okay, but it would be nice for that to be an option for those who could benefit from it.
0: Now, sticking with the addiction theme, tell us about your research with addiction, and is it, you know, are you finding that, you know, the stuff coming out of Hopkins and other centers on the use of these compounds for addiction, is it, are they echoing each other? Are they kind of tracking each other, or are they outliers?
1: A, another good question there does seem to be some consistency in findings right to date we have the most robust findings from michael bogenschutz in his work with alcohol use disorder and those findings were published in jama psychiatry recently and certainly suggest that psilocybin could be effective in the treatment of alcohol use disorder otherwise we have findings from matt johnson's work with with smoking cessation also indicating that psilocybin could be effective in the treatment of tobacco dependence. But I think if you took a good look, you might note that the the idea that someone could receive one dose of psilocybin, stop drinking once and for all and, and never drink again, or stop smoking once and for all and never smoke again, could be true of some, but for many it may not be. And so I think a big question going forward, especially as we eye use in an actual real-world clinical settings might be, you know, who who responds to this especially well? Who might be a really good candidate for this treatment? Who doesn't respond to it well? Or also, who might need more than one dose? Who might need a larger dose than others? Perhaps it's the case that in the future, we'd see that an experience every six months or so can maintain abstinence for some, but whereas others might only need one experience to, to put the the substance down once and for all? So there are a lot of questions here, but in general, I would say, yes, there does seem to be an anti-addictive effect.
0: And the other thing that's sort of, from the messaging standpoint, that's important, our other guests have pointed out, is that this is a therapeutic package. You know, that the idea, it would be unfortunate if people got the idea that, okay, this is about popping a pill and then I'm going to stop drinking or smoking. Talk about that Uh a little bit because there have been concerns raised that the clinical research protocols that require two therapists, require sessions before, sessions afterward, that this is just not practical from a cost standpoint, a workforce standpoint, to actually get out into the real world and, and help folks?
1: Well, there are a couple things about that. So it is, I think, very strongly assumed, and, and probably for good reason, that the psychotherapy that accompanies psilocybin administration or psychedelic administration that bookends that drug administration is critical. And and generally, it seems that the research would support this. Having strong therapeutic alliance with your psychotherapist is predictive of a a more beneficial experience, a more pleasant experience. A psychological state of surrender also seems to predict a, a more beneficial or therapeutic experience. And that state of surrender appears to be facilitated by strong therapeutic alliance. Intention also might matter. And and there's some idea that psychedelics could open up a window of opportunity wherein behavior change is especially likely to take place. So it would make sense then to provide some sort of psychotherapy after the drug experience so as to maximize the likelihood of more adaptive behavior change. But we don't really know. I mean, there's never been a study that has compared psilocybin with, with very minimal intervention. Relative to psilocybin with more extensive intervention or, or varying levels of psychotherapy to see if there there really are meaningful differences, it, I think it's fairly safe to assume that we would we would see some differences because you know psychotherapy does work. But I guess the question is, will we ever be at the point where we could simply bring somebody into a clinic without any psychotherapy whatsoever and administer one of these very highly salient and potent psychoactive substances. And I think just as a matter of logic, we would say no. I mean, th- these, these experiences can be very anxiety provoking. They can elicit panic. And if one doesn't feel comfortable and doesn't trust their therapist, then this could lead to some disastrous consequences. But I think the big question is precisely how much psychotherapy needs to be provided, especially if we want to come up with a, a scalable model, one that could work in real world settings. And the reality that we're we're, we're dealing with here, at least in the US, is we have managed care that will reimburse for a certain degree of psychotherapy or treatment. And managed care is going to be especially oriented toward immediate costs. The reason for that is most customers, and, and that's the, the term I think they would use, would, would, would be customers for maybe a year or two. So arguments around cost-effectiveness Long-term cost-effectiveness may not be relevant to a a managed care company. What might be more relevant is immediate costs and immediate benefits. So I think we're going to have to come up with a business model that works. This is really critical. And if you're familiar at all with what's happening with spravado, esketamine, you know it's it's probably well. I'll just say it's an example of of how not to do things best because. Spravato is, is not doing especially well, we'll just say, clinically speaking. Well, this is the company with a network of ketamine clinics around the country. Yeah, well, just the the, the drug itself, the the nasal esketamine, most, most clinics are unable to build a business model there that makes sense. And obviously, any given clinic can't provide a treatment if they lose money on doing so. Many clinics... they're doing well might be breaking even and i think the general idea is because managed care will reimburse for the physician's time but not for the nurse who has to monitor a patient for three or so hours so there needs to be some sort of business model of managed care here that makes sense and i'd like us to be thinking about it now but you know there there are a lot of big questions like if, if this is going to be approved soon how are we going to create a more scalable model what precisely might the psychotherapy look like how much needs to be provided and there are interesting questions around dosing parameters so if you were a patient if you respond really well to the first dose then might you need another and if so when if you don't respond well to the first dose then what do we do do we increase the dose and administer at another time if there's some sense that you might be regressing to to baseline in some ways let's say in the case of depression What do we do then do we schedule another session and and what might the dosing be these are all really important questions and and i'm really glad that there seem to be a lot of people interested in in answering those questions at the moment but to get to your original question i think we do need to to ask ourselves like what role does psychotherapy play the original scientist i think though it's not really reported in the science that the standards for science were not then what they are today you do get the sense that they learn through trial and error okay the psychotherapy is important we can't just we can't just bring someone into the lab give them lsd for example and walk away and there was a study where that happened by the way and you know there, there was still an effect that would suggest that lsd was effective at reducing alcohol consumption in this study but the confidence intervals around the treatment response were quite wide which you know would suggest that you can you can maximize response by by optimizing psychotherapy yeah
0: Let's move away from the real world considerations and, and get back into research. Because as I said at the beginning, one of the reasons we want to talk to you is that you're also pursuing this sort of treatment for fibromyalgia and, and other pain disorders. So tell us about the evolution of that and, and what you're finding.
1: I want to give an answer that doesn't really get into the details, because it, if, if I do, then we'll end up talking for hours. But I think it's, it's fair to say that, that pain is a complex phenomenon it's it's a it involves a a number of different processes here and there are certainly psychological elements so my own thinking is is as follows pain involves a a physiological sensation but also a psychological reaction to that pain we know that those who are living with chronic pain can sometimes feel very pessimistic and can ruminate on their pain and and catastrophize in the sense they might think okay here's this pain it's always going to be this way it's never going to get better why is my life the way it is and and you know I guess everything's changed and I'll never be the way I was I'll forever be broken and obviously I understand how someone can feel that way right there's a certain sense of demoralization there but we also know that these thought processes don't help and those who assume a more optimistic stance, tend to have a better experience with their pain. And there are a number of reasons for this. And there's also just the idea that one could get to the point where their distress tolerance could improve, right? So if you've known any athletes, for example, they might roll their ankles or get injured in some way, and they would tell you, yeah, the pain is there, but I just don't really notice it and it doesn't bother me right? So they would, they could potentially have the same sort of physiological experience that you might have if you also rolled your ankle. But if your distress tolerance is not quite as high, you might say, this is just awful and I can't stand it. And, oh, I can't believe this happened to me. I need to go home and stay in bed. And your your athlete friend might say, I'm just going to walk it off. Now, that's not always the best way of coping with pain, of course. But the, the point I'm trying to make is there's some sense on my part that if we can alter cognitions, if we can alter psychological processes, we might be able to help people better cope with that experience of pain, right? If we can take someone from feeling very pessimistic about their pain and feeling like it it, it might never get better, to feeling like this might in fact improve, there are things that I can do to manage my pain. If we can take people from feeling like pain is an adverse Adverse experience that has to be avoided to maybe a challenge to be conquered, if we can get people to thinking that they won't always be this way and that they might improve, we, we might very well see a, a pretty big improvement in, in that pain experience, especially in that these changes in cognitions could, could lead to adaptive changes in behavior to better manage the pain. Now, there, there are other things that might be at play. There, there could be neurobiological explanations. Now I'm a psychologist. So of course I have a bias toward those that I just explained, but there could be also that psychedelics reduce chronic inflammation. That's often to, to blame for, for pain. And that might be the case in fibromyalgia. So we're conducting a study now of psilocybin in the treatment of fibromyalgia, but like quite honestly, we don't know whether it might be effective. And if so, how we'd like to try to begin to answer those questions. This is an initial study that, we'll will begin to get at whether there's any signal of efficacy and if so what what might be driving that signal but you know ultimately getting at the mechanism is a question that i think will require many years of of study but right now at least my hypothesis is that we might be altering some psychological processes that would ultimately make the pain more tolerable
0: oh, that's um, fascinating so, on that, I'm wondering if folks that are, let's say, and I don't know how to use what the terminology is, but folks who are inclined to be more pessimistic or more likely to have mood disorders or whatever, the negative people, versus folks who are more optimistic, more buoyant, and whether it's pain or not, as challenges come into their life, they're, they're better positioned to handle them. Is that a dynamic here in terms of the patient population? and who might respond to the psychedelic treatment.
1: Yeah, there, there does seem to be an association between both optimism and pessimism, which are not just opposite ends of the spectrum, but maybe two unique contra, constructs in a way. I suppose one could be both optimistic and pessimistic in, in different, different ways. But it does appear that people who are more optimistic cope better with pain, and those who are especially pessimistic cope not so well. It appears that there's an association between the catastrophizing process, as I mentioned, and, and pain as well. And you know why this is: it's likely that that some of these cognitions themselves can kind of amplify the subjective pain experience. And you might think to experience you may have had as an adult or a child, where if you expect something to be really awful, it typically tends to be. If in the moment you think something is really terrible it tends to be and in the same way if you expect a certain treatment to help you you might find that it would even if you receive say a placebo right so we generally know that that one's mindset can have a a rather profound effect on physiological experience you may have come across some of this research indicating that open label placebos can be effective for ibs
0: yeah amazing even though even though people know that they're getting a placebo, it still has a positive impact.
1: Exactly. Right. So this speaks to the 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 power of of one's expectations, expectancies. I, I think what sometimes people refer to as psychoneuroimmunology, although well, that's a, 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 a bit tangential, but still the idea here is that one's mindset can quite literally have an impact on physiological processes. Right. So if if one is more optimistic that things could get better and that they have control over their future, then they are likely to report, in the case of pain, less pain than if they feel things will never improve, things will always be the way they are, and there's nothing they can do to change. And you know that that is also related to this concept of growth mindset. So you know what I, I would like to see is for those who have these chronic pain issues, rather than having a a sense that nothing can improve. And this is just a, a threat that I need to avoid at all times to sort of embrace this as a challenge the way maybe like a marathon runner would approach training for a marathon. Maybe my times aren't that great right now, but if I keep working on this, this could really get better. And I think that mindset alone will alter the subjective pain response in the same way that simply believing you've received a treatment that could work could alter IBS symptoms. You've got your Work cut out for you for the next hundred years to, <laughs> to work your way through all of this. There are so many. I mean, I think we're just at the very tip of the iceberg, and there there are so many questions that will need to be answered in the years to come. I really look forward to seeing what this next generation of scientists will be doing. I mean, again, I I would not have guessed that we'd be where we are now, and it's just really a thrill to see this line of work taking off. But you know, you think about it, psilocybin. LSD mescaline, the psychedelics that we know of might also just be the tip of the iceberg because there are many other compounds that could be synthesized that would be even better. And and so I think we have hundreds of years in front of us to to really fine tune things and get to the point where we're working with just the, the right molecule for just the right condition and provided with just the right sort of psychotherapeutic support.
0: Yeah. Well put. We need to bring this to a close, unfortunately. But I do want to give you time to answer one of our favorite questions, which is, you know, we have a lot of learners and early career professionals in our audience, and we'd like to have our guests kind of share their general advice. In this case, you know, it's about perhaps students who are interested in pursuing the line of work that you're in, but if not just general advice about approaching a career in healthcare and science at this particularly exciting and challenging time.
1: Well, you know, I have a, a favorite response to that question and one that I share with my own students. I think a key to success is, you know, resilience and grit, grit being persistence and passion. You know, the, if you've read, for instance, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, you know, he indicate there are a lot of really intelligent people out there who, who may not be doing with their lives what you would expect given their IQ, right? So somebody with a very high IQ might have a career as like a bouncer in a nightclub. That might be the example he uses, and that's perfectly fine. I don't, I don't mean to besmirch anyone who chooses that as their career. But you might be surprised that someone that intelligent has chosen that sort of career. So there are a lot of really smart people out there who may not be maximizing their potential, and also there are a lot of people who are are you know fairly average who've done really amazing things. And and so the question is why is that? And my sense is that. Ultimately, the best predictor of success is the degree to which you're willing to work and work hard and, and to refuse to give up when you really do believe in something. And I think for those of us who pursued research in psychedelics, especially the handful of us who were doing this before it was you know fashionable, we would all say that we were committed to doing this even in the face of sometimes the, the possibility that we could end our careers because of it. But we all felt committed enough. And this would apply to people who by the way came before me like charlie grobe and dave nichols and mark Geyer and others franz Vollenweider, people who were just convinced that they were on to something here meaningful and were just persistent and passionate and so the only thing i really say is if you really find something you truly believe in you've got to keep working at it even in the face of setbacks because there will always be setbacks there will always be setbacks and in my line of work, I'm almost constantly getting reviews on grants or papers or other ideas that are, you know, negative or critical. And you just have to get to the point where you realize it's 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 just how the game is played. People are going to critique and criticize what you do, and you have to refuse to give up in the face of that criticism. And so that's like the one bit of advice I could give. Like, do not give up when you really f- have found yourself passionate about something you really believe in keep trying and don't let the little setbacks keep you from pursuing what you really want to pursue.
0: Yeah. So figuring out what is the fuel for persistence and maintenance of effort in a way?
1: Well, okay. This is full circle. I mean, for me, it's some, some sort of set sense of transcendence, some sense of something bigger than self. Okay. So that's going to vary from person to person, you know, for, for, <laughs> from my own perspective, I was raised in a, you know, religious household, I, I, I would identify as Christian to this day. I'm not evangelical, but I, I do have the sense that I'm I'm here for a reason. And part of that reason is to to try to make this world a better place to try to contribute to the reduction of human suffering to, to look back on my life when it's all said and done and feel like I really did something meaningful, and that was helpful to humanity. And in some ways, I feel I will, I will have to answer to a higher power or my life. And that's something that can fuel my fire. But I mean, this, this is going to vary from person to person, but I would just say personally, it helps to have some sort of transcendent calling. And I I would just, you know, encourage those listening to, to explore what that might be.
0: That is great food for thought. And I really want to thank you for spending time with us today and sharing your perspective on this really fascinating field and wish you all the best in your work.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I'm Michael Carice. thanks for checking out today's show, and remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org/slash line podcast.